Well, uh, we are in a new year this year, and as part of being in a new year, we're in a new series that is centered around the dinner table, of all things. And that's because as we're learning about deepening relationships, we've seen that no matter where you go in the world or what time in history, how far back you look, people have been using tables like these to gather, to eat, and to share their lives and to build relationships. You know, I was really taken by this idea of how tables were used even in the New Testament as I was looking at the book of Acts and I saw how simple yet central the table was in the beginnings of the Christian church. It says in Acts 2 that early Christians grew closer to each other and closer to God around tables like these. And as they did so, they discerned how to reach their world for Christ. It says in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2 that they spent time together. They devoted themselves to fellowship and to sharing meals and prayer with great joy and generosity. And it says as they did those simple things, their numbers were added to daily. Daily more and more people came to experience the unconditional love and grace of God, which I think is amazing. Here at Grace, we also believe that the best, that, that, that we believe that people best experience the life-changing power of Christ, not through gospel tracts necessarily or debates, but through relationship around settings like this where life is simply shared. You know, one of the ways we do that at Grace is through our life groups ministry as groups meet during the week and we gather around tables and we study God's Word together and we pray. We also do that here at Grace a lot through the ministry of Alpha. I love the fact that we are one of, one of thousands of churches around the world who participate in Alpha. And what, as you saw in that video a little bit earlier this morning, Alpha is really kind of centered around the table as well. You kind of come in from your busy day, maybe from work, from school. You sit around a table, you eat together, you make some relationships, perhaps with some people you don't know. But you start to build relationships. You share uh, over time as you watch some video clips some of the things that you've struggled with perhaps with your own faith journey. Maybe those tough questions that you haven't resolved, those doubts that you might have. And there's a place of safety around the table where you can share those things without judgment or fear of what someone else might think and perhaps help someone else grow even in their own relationship with Christ. If you've never been to an Alpha, I just want to personally encourage you to give that a shot this Wednesday night. And if you have that you would think of someone that you know, maybe at your work, uh, maybe at the gym, wherever it is that you socialize, who who are those people in your life that you could bring to the table? Whether it's at your own dinner table at home or perhaps at the Alpha table starting this Wednesday night. We would love to have you show up with some friends of yours that night. Now, last week as we started this series, we looked at a story from the Bible about how Jesus valued fellowship like that. And how, as we do so, we're living in, uh, we're investing in each other's lives. Now, one of the encouraging things that I heard from just this past weekend, with the, from the messages from this past weekend, was that one family was sharing with me that, we, you know, I gave this challenge about what would it look like for the, if we spent more time as families around the dinner table. And one family decided that they haven't been doing that enough, and uh, for, they, they've kind of committed to finding two or three nights a week from now on to eat meals together, which they haven't done in years, which I think is pretty cool. Now, um, today we're going to see how valuable it is to spend time around the table and how it not only affects our relationships with each other, 
but how it affects our relationships with God. We model faith for our friends and our family, for our kids, in the simple moments of life, like times sitting around the table, as we talk about God and we talk to God in those times. For example, what's the first thing that you typically, if you do have a meal at home, what's the first thing you might typically do when you sit down to have a meal? You know what it is? Pray, right? I mean, some of us might do, some of us may not think about that always. We're not, maybe always not good at it. But a lot of us, you know, that time of prayer is something that's kind of like the, the first thing that we do, right? Um, it's oftentimes it's usually, it's, it's brief. It's a one-way conversation with God before we start talking with each other and, and eating together. But that can be a meaningful moment with God each day if we allow it to be. And I have been in homes where I have, even some of your homes where I have eaten meals. And sometimes those prayers are kind of rote, but sometimes they have been deeply meaningful. As I've seen people connect to each other and connect to God in a time of prayer. As they open their heart and share their gratitude and thanksgiving to God. Now I'm curious, so many of you, you're from different parts of the country, you have different walks of life. How many of you, when you were raised, you had something like that in your home, where you kind of prayed over meals, many of you? A few of you. I think there were maybe more hands in the first service where where that was kind of a normal part of things um, than in this service. But how how many of you do that today? Many of you? You have some time around the table where you pray together? Yeah, I remember when I was growing up, I was raised in a farming community. My dad was a farmer. He worked really, really long hours. But I remember we always had that evening meal together. And we always had Sunday lunch together. And even though my dad was working late hours in the field, he would come in to eat with us before he might go back out. And always, always, every time, we would, before we would eat anything, we would stop and we would pray together. I remember even as a little kid wondering, I wonder what would happen if we don't do the prayer thing. Would like, is the food going to be cursed or something? You know, I was like, you know, every now and then my brother would, my little brother would just want to dive in and start eating. And I'm just like elbowing him. like, wait a minute, Jesus hasn't blessed us yet. You know, and so I'd, I'd be, I was like the rule follower in the house. I wanted to make sure we do this because I, I just assumed that that was what you were supposed to do. And I was missing the point. I was thinking this is what we are supposed to do rather than seeing This is a moment I as a child can have with my creator, with my God, who gave me this meal, who gave me this family, who gave me everything that I have. Now, this is interesting. You you got some of you know that I'm I'm a history buff. I always have been. I minored in history in college. And one of the things that's really interesting to me when I think about the, the dinner table is that prior to the Revolutionary War, in the early 1700s and, and before that, families often lived together as extended families. So lots of people would be living in the same home together. But their tables weren't always that big. They couldn't seat everybody. So you know how they ate meals? They actually ate meals in shifts. Oftentimes, back then, uh, adults would eat first and then kids would eat later. Or oftentimes there wasn't even enough places for all the adults to eat at one time. And so the men would eat first you thought we were chivalrous always back then. We weren't. But the men would eat first, and then the women would eat, and then the children would eat at the table, and they would take these shifts. Now, over time, things started to change in America. Over time, tables got larger where they could seat more, and families got smaller. The extended families weren't necessarily living together. And we kind of got to a place by the 1950s in this country where 
it looked a little something like this. Now, I'm going to show you a video, but just brace yourself. This was 70 years ago. What, you see, what you're going to see just might surprise you. Take a look at this. This boy and girl coming home from school look quite content with life. And why not? They're looking forward to an important date, dinner at home with the family. First of all, daughter has changed from school clothes to something more festive. Dressing a little makes her feel and consequently look more charming. Mother, too, changes from her daytime clothes. The women of this family seem to feel that they owe it to the men of the family to look relaxed, rested, and attractive <laughs> at dinner times. These boys greet their dad as though they are genuinely glad to see him. As though they had really missed being away from him during the day and are anxious to talk to him. Well, the dinner date has begun, and they're all happy about it. Many families throughout the country observe the custom of saying grace at mealtime. It is always treated with reverence and respect. They converse pleasantly while Dad serves. I said pleasantly, for that is the keynote at dinner time. It is not only good manners but good sense. Pleasant, unemotional conversation helps digestion. <laughs> Always wait for the hostess, in this case mother, to begin eating before you start. Let father and mother guide the conversational trend if they desire. After all, they made all this possible and may want to talk over their day with each other. Tell mother how good the food is. Maybe sis rates a compliment too. It makes them want to continue pleasing you. Don't monopolize the conversation and go on and on without stopping. Nothing destroys the charm of a meal more quickly. To say that the rest of the group is bored would be a gross understatement. This does not mean you should be stiff or formal. With your own family, you can relax. Be yourself. Just be sure it's your best self. <laughs> There is no family so busy, but that it can come together in the evening for a dinner date which will give its members something to look back upon with happiness all their days. Oh, my goodness. Aren't you glad the 1950s stayed in the 1950s? <laughs> actually, this is a 10-minute instructional video that was created in 1950. I actually included it in your online sermon notes at MyGrace.Church. So if you want to go home this afternoon and strap your kids down and make them watch this, please do. And let me know how that goes, by the way. I would love to know. So how we eat has evolved over the centuries for sure. But tables have always been a place of prayer. Even back to the time of Jesus and for, for all the centuries since, Christian people have gathered around the table and they have prayed. They have given thanks to God uh, when they have gathered together to eat. Whether Jesus was with a few friends or he was feeding thousands, Jesus gave us the example as he showed gratitude to God for the things that were provided. Jesus' very life was a life that modeled fellowship with God through prayer. Now, Jesus certainly had a heart for the world. There's no question about that when you look at his life. But I, what I want you to hear today is this. Jesus' heart wasn't centered in the world. Jesus loved people. He, he spent his days fellowshipping and building relationships with people. He helped people. He, he served people, yes. But he never burned out 
in ministry in the three years he was serving. He never needed a break from people for extended periods of time. And do you know why? Because his life wasn't centered in the world. He loved them, but his life wasn't centered there. His life was centered in his relationship with God and how he practiced the spiritual disciplines each and every day in in, and through his life. His relationship with God was the center, the foundation of his life. His life wasn't centered around helping other people. His life wasn't a flurry of busyness and tasks and events that that would engross his time. Fellowship with God always stayed his priority to the point that he would literally walk away from people at times, from crowds of people who were waiting to see him, who were hoping to be prayed for and hoping to be healed, and he would just walk away just to be with God. Because for him, that relationship was everything to him. Jesus modeled having a heart centered on God rather than the world by making spiritual disciplines like prayer a natural, regular part of his day-to-day life. Now, I want to show you a little bit about what I mean by that, if I can. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8 for just a minute. And if you, if you don't have your Bibles with you, I bet you have one in your pocket. Feel free to grab your cell phone right now. Open up your web browser to mygrace.church and you can click on the sermon notes tab there and you can read Mark 8 with us. You can also see some of the, some of the notes that I've also created there uh, on that page. And, and as you're turning there, let me just say that time with God wasn't something that Jesus tried to fit in around his ministry. Jesus fit his ministry around his time with God. His life was centered and rooted every day in his relationship with God. Let's look at an example of that. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been here with me for three days, and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? I'm going to stop there for a moment. Let me just share with you, as you're looking at this passage, this trip that Jesus was on here to this region called Tyre and Sidon, this was the farthest Jesus had ever traveled, as far as we know from Scripture, in his whole ministry. It was about 125 miles away from Jerusalem. And it's actually, these two towns are in the nation of Lebanon today, not even in Israel. Now, Jesus has traveled all this distance and he's healing people, as you see in chapter 7. He's been teaching for three days straight and people are just captivated by Jesus' teaching. The crowds keep getting bigger and bigger. People are hungry for more and, and they're not willing to leave, even though they're running out of food. And Jesus knows that some of them, have traveled a really long ways to get there. And that he knows he's getting ready to send them home without food across a hot desert, and that that is just a death wish. It's a recipe for disaster. I mean, back in that part of the part of the world, it's very similar to here in the desert southwest. In the summers, temperatures over 100 degrees in the desert is, is common. It's, it's normal. And so imagine Jesus sending out thousands of people. Say Jesus were here. Imagine him sending out thousands of people on foot from Tucson to walk home, say, all the way to Phoenix or to Nogales in the summer 
in the desert without anything to eat. How do you think that's going to go? Do you see the problem? So Jesus is getting genuinely concerned about what's about to happen. And he's like, guys, disciples, what are we going to do? We need to feed these people. And the disciples look at Jesus like, there's 4,000 people here, Jesus. How? We can't do that. Now, one of the things, you may not think about this, but my brain, this is typically how I think. You know, as I was studying this passage, I flipped a page back to a couple of chapters before, and I saw the story where Jesus fed 5,000. And I was thinking to myself, man, how long had it been since Jesus had just done this miracle? What's their problem? Don't they, don't they have any faith? I mean, they had just seen Jesus. I mean, that story says that he, Jesus fed uh, 5,000 men plus women and children. There were probably 10,000 people there that day that Jesus fed. And now these guys are looking at Jesus clueless like, oh, how are you, you going to feed these 4,000? But then as I was thinking about as thinking those thoughts, Jesus reminded me, I believe, that that's how you and I are as well. You know, God provides for us over and over and over again. Each and every day, right? Yeah, how many times do we say, uh-oh, what are we going to do, right? We get fear and we get worried and we wonder how God's going to provide. So it doesn't surprise me that they're feeling the way they're feeling, but it's a good thought for me to consider. So many times I have wondered, is God going to be faithful? Is God going to provide? After, even after seeing for 40 plus years God providing over and over and over again. Jesus asked them if there's any food around, and they say, well, Jesus, we can find about seven loaves of bread here. That's not going to cut it. But then notice what Jesus does here in verse 6. After he realizes they have seven loaves, he says, it says, so Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, he thanked God for them, and he broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd, a few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. So Jesus gathers what he has, these seven loaves of bread and he goes to God in prayer and he's expressing gratitude to God and God meets them once again at their point of need in fact a little bit later Jesus says here that Jesus even finds some fish and he stops again and he prays he connects to God and he thanks God for this provision now all these people in this crowd I'm sure they couldn't have heard God praying I heard Jesus praying to God but that's okay and the prayer wasn't for them. Sometimes I think when we pray around the table, we're, we're praying words for each other rather than to God. But Jesus, in those moments, he was giving gratitude and thanksgiving to God. He was showing God his heart. Jesus shows us here at mealtimes, this is just one example of how throughout our days, we need to t- make the choice to pause, to slow down from the fast pace of life to fellowship with God. To express genuine hearts of gratitude to God, no matter who's around. And remind ourselves that these times aren't to be an interruption of our day, but rather the central moments of our day. It's when these moments, like prayer time at meals, are seen as interruptions that our times with God can become perfunctory. 
Our fellowship with God can become formulaic. And our times, even with God, even with the best of intentions, can start to drift. And we drift away from the source of life. And we can start to even burn out emotionally inside. Jesus' entire life was modeled around a heart centered on God, as we see in the Gospels. Prayers, prayers at meals were just a small, small part of that. Jesus was up early to be with God. He was up late at times with God. He would walk away from any or everyone who was around when he felt the need to, to be with the Father. Building relationships, fostering fellowship with God isn't something that we can kind of quickly check off our list each day like so many other tasks. So often when it comes to fellowship or table talk with God, practicing spiritual disciplines like solitude or silence or prayer or reading scripture, we can see those as interruptions in our day from the normal flow of things. And so we try to to squeeze those things into our day rather than seeing those as the central moments of our day, the time that we are connecting with our Creator and the one who loves us more than anyone else on this world could possibly love us. Jesus modeled having a heart centered on God rather than the world by making the spiritual disciplines like prayer a regular, routine, natural part of each moment of his life. He didn't squeeze a moment in with God when he could find the time. His life centered on it and fostering that relationship with God. You know, I have come to realize over my adult life just how important this is. Um, If if it's okay, I just want to tell you a little story. Um, Back in 1999, I was in seminary. I had had gone into the ministry just about three or four years before. I had started seminary back in 98, and I had been... So I've been going to seminary for about a year, and uh, I was getting ready to take a church history class, of all things. And um, there was this guy, I I took my classes at Fuller Seminary in the Phoenix area, and um, oftentimes these professors would be flown in from other parts of the country. And there was this professor at Fuller, I, I remember his name distinctly, his name was Nate. And no one wanted to take classes with Nate, because he was such a stickler. He was a tough grader, and he had all these expectations on students. And so people didn't, in Phoenix really didn't like to take classes with him. And there was this trend that started back then where people would actually drive from Phoenix to Tucson to take their history classes so they could avoid Nate. There was this professor who would teach at the extension campus at Fuller here in Tucson. His name was Maxie, and everyone loved Maxie. And so I thought, hey. I'll just drive to Tucson every weekend for the next year, take church history classes down here rather than taking them from Nate uh, in Phoenix. So I started doing that. And um, by the way, that was, it was when I took my first class here. It was at, the, those classes were meeting at Westminster Presbyterian off of Fort Lowell. It was there that I met Megan Gillen for the first time. Megan was the wife of the lead pastor before I came here. I didn't know anything about the covenant back then. I didn't know anything about about this church but I met Megan in that class uh, and we developed a relationship there but anyway um, I was taking this class and one of the expectations that this class had was that I had to write a research paper and um, it was going to be on you know church history was divided up into three sections this particular class was 
the early years of church history, the first three or four centuries. And so I had to choose a research project. And I had this interest with the early desert fathers, these monks who would go and live out in the desert uh, in Egypt and in Israel uh, back in the first few centuries after Jesus had been resurrected and how they had these dynamic ministries. And I thought, I'd love to know a little bit more about them. So I did my research project on that. And I was just fascinated by what I saw. You know, I, I figured that most of these people would just be hermits off living out in the desert, and some of them were, and they didn't connect with anybody, but many of them, they would spend this time with God, and then they would go and do ministry, touching the lives of other people, and their ministries were profound. And as I studied them, I, I thought to myself, what, what made them different? How did they have these greatly impacting ministries in their day to the fact that, I mean, there's, there were so much, so much writing that you can go back and see where it talks about these amazing ministries that these people had. And I thought, what, what was it? And then I think I figured it out. I noticed as I looked into their lives and studied them, they didn't focus their days around people and doing ministry. They focused their lives around Jesus. They focused it around practicing the spiritual disciplines, about getting close to God, spending time praying, spending time in silence and solitude, spending time in God's Word. And that was the center of their lives. And in the time they had left, they would do ministry, and it was amazing. But their focus wasn't on the world. Their focus was on God. And I thought to myself when that that aha moment finally came, I thought, that's it. That's what I'm missing. I started looking around at some of the, the people that I knew in ministry that were kind of like role models to me, and I realized they're in the same boat I am. They do the same thing. Their focus is, is so much on doing the work of the ministry that they aren't in the presence of God enough. And I thought, one of these days, I'm going to have to figure this out for myself. One of these days, I'm going to have to figure out how to do life like they did somehow in the desert southwest in the 21st century so that I can have the benefit of that in my life like they did. And then I forgot about it, as you might expect. 20 years later, nearly 20 years later, March of this past year, I uh, was thinking about going on sabbatical. Uh, I knew that in June of 2018 uh, I would have that opportunity to take three months to do that and I thought, I wonder what I could do. And at that time, I had a few friends tell me, you know what, there is a possibility of you getting a grant from the Lilly Pharmaceutical Foundation, believe it or not. They offer grants to a very select number of pastors every year to go off, to spend some time uh, disconnecting from their body, to just be able to be refreshed and filled. And they fund this completely. And so I thought, well, who? Why, why don't I try this? I wrote a, I've never written a grant in my life. I didn't know what I was doing. I grabbed a couple of people at Grace who knew a little bit about it, and we put together this multiple-page grant proposal about how Grace Community Church could be renewed by me taking this sabbatical and how Lilly Pharmaceutical Foundation could play a key component in that. And uh, part of this was that I had to come up with a theme of how, you know, and basically a justification of why they should invest in us why they should invest in this community, why they should invest in me and my family in, in doing this. And so I'm like, hmm, I don't know. Why should they? And God reminded me about that paper I wrote in 1999 and what I, the thing that I had left undone. And I felt like God was stirring in me and saying, David, don't you think now is the time to figure that out?
I thought, yeah. So we wrote this grant proposal and we talked about how we as a community want to get back to our spiritual roots in the early faith. And we want to figure out how in the midst of 21st century American life with us having so many responsibilities and being pulled in so many directions every day, how we can learn to live life like they had discovered centuries ago with God at the center. So I wrote this proposal and I sent it off thinking they're not going to possibly say yes to this. And they did. They gave us a check for $50,000 to be able to handle this whole thing. To not only fund Teresa and I and my son getting away, but to fund two people coming in to fill my shoes while I'm gone. And so that grace won't skip a beat. We, in, in this proposal, this, this is what you have to look forward to starting in early May. The, the guy who poured into my life for seven years... A guy by the name of Dwayne Cross, he was my mentor at the last church I served in before I came, became a lead pastor. He is going to, he's retired now, but he's been serving in ministry for nearly 40 years. And he will be your pastor over this summer. I'm telling you, you are going to be so blessed by this man and his wife and their ministry. It just, I wish I was a fly on the wall. I wish I could be a part of this with you because I, I'm going to, I'm going to want to be able to just, I know I'm sure I'm going to be wanting to call some of you guys and find out how it's going. And because it's, his ministry has just been such, so impacting in my life. I know it's going to be in yours. But not only will Dwayne be coming to preach and help lead our staff, we'll also be having a, another friend of mine named Debbie, Debbie DiBernardi, who also is in the Phoenix area, and she's a spiritual director. And she'll be joining us on staff for the summer as well. Debbie, I met in seminary back in the 90s. She was in children's ministry at a time, for a time in Phoenix. Then she became a lead pastor. And now she spends all of her time doing spiritual direction with people. People come to her with questions about life and their future and what's God's plan for my life. And she sits down with them and she helps them discern what God is saying. She has this incredible ministry. And so she will bless you guys as well over the next summer while I'm gone. So at the beginning of May, I will be taking off for a number of weeks, and they will be coming in. And I just want to ask you to be praying for me, praying for my family, praying for us as we get ready to go into that time together. I think God has some really cool stuff in store for us. But I would appreciate you praying with us as we get ready to embark on that together. As, as one person said here a little while ago uh, when we were praying for the leadership of our church, we have a lot of things going on in the life of grace, a lot of change coming. And uh, we need to be on our face before God. We need to be seeking God and asking God, God, what do you have for us? How can we best use this place at Grace Community to reach more and more people with the uncompromising, grace-filled love of Christ? That's, what we, that's, that's why we started here as a community back in the 1980s. That's our heartbeat. That's, that's who we are. How can we show the unconditional love of Jesus to our community here in Tucson and help them see what it looks like to be fully devoted followers of Christ who hear the voice of God, who know that voice and follow it? I so want this for my life. And I want this for your life as well. We have a grand vision to be, to be fully devoted followers of Christ who share Christ's love with Tucson and the world. And this coming year, I want to ask you to join me in that. To help me 
to look at, so oftentimes we think about our spiritual lives as being centered here on this campus. But they're also centered around the dinner table. They're centered in our homes. They're centered in our communities as we go to work, as we go to school, as we go to the gym. And we run into people and we build relationships. And in those moments, God opens the door for people to stay, take steps closer to him. This morning, I don't want you to just hear from me. I also want you to hear from a couple of other people here in our community who have been stirred in some of these ways. So would you, would you welcome to the stage for just a moment Becca Anderson and Brenda Heddles. Thank you guys for joining me up here this morning. You know, as you sit down, you know, I, know that many, I know that both of you have been here a part of Grace for quite some time. And maybe most of us, if not all of us, have met at least one of you before. Could you tell us how long have you been at Grace and maybe some of the things you've been involved in? Well, our family has actually been at Grace for 21 years. Wow. Uh, when we arrived, we had three young children, three, six, and eight. And now they're in their 20s and we're grandparents. And this has been a very important part of our lives over those 20 years. Um, I've been at Grace since 2003, right after I graduated high school. My family started coming here, and I met my husband here and have had two children now since we've been here. Um, and you might have might see me fr- or recognize me from worship team years ago before I really had kids and had extra time. Um, but now <laughs> uh, my husband Ryan and I help out with um, youth group uh, and Sunday school on Sunday mornings for the 8th, 9th, and 10th graders. That's awesome. Now let me ask you guys, when you think back on your childhood, but maybe even in present day, have you had prayers around meals? What have they looked like? Have they been kind of rote or have they been personal, memorable in any way? Well, growing up, my father always said the prayer at the beginning of the meal, and that was impactful for me. I think at the time I didn't realize how much it impacted me, but I was thinking about that again recently. And my father was a rather simple man, but he was eloquent in prayer. And he would always start out his prayers with our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father. And I think hearing that every day uh, touched my heart and helped me develop a reverence for God as well as a child. And mm-hmm. then when uh, Jim and I had our family, uh, we lived in France at the time, and we had a little French chorus that we would sing as our blessing to our family, and that was really fun. Uh, and we've continued that tradition at times as well. Um, my family, we grew up saying, I think it was the Catholic grace because my dad's whole family said it and they were all Catholic. And um, we would say it with my grandma every time she came over for dinner and we'd say it all together. And then at the end, my grandma would jump in and add, and thank you for, and please add, or please be with, or add her own little addendums. Um, and she was hard of hearing, so sometimes she would start that before we actually had finished praying. But, um, and... My most vivid memory of that grace is um, at my grandma's 90th birthday. All five of her kids, four of their spouses, all 12 grandkids were all there. And this is the same grace we had all grown up saying, and we all said it together around the meal. And it was so unifying, and you could just feel the power of the Spirit there as we all agreed um, it with thanksgiving over this meal and our family and our grandma. Mm, that's cool. Now, in this message, I've been talking about and sharing a little bit of the struggles in my own life about how to build the spiritual disciplines into your life, to not make them an addendum to my day. I wonder if you guys have found some of those struggles in your own life, and, and how have you figured out how to incorporate in the normal rhythms of your life some of those simple disciplines, whether it's solitude and silence or scripture reading or prayer? What does that look like for you? Well, I had the blessing when I was in 
college to be in a ministry that helped me learn at that stage in my life how to read the scriptures on a daily basis and how to journal and how to pray. And I'm so grateful for that foundation that's carried me all through my adult life since then. And I haven't always been faithful in that, Some depending on the period of life that I'm in. But it's, uh, it's part of my life that's really important to spend time in prayer and in, in the Word. I think uh, most recently I'm trying to learn more about how to listen to the Lord in prayer too, not just to talk to Him, but to try to be still and listen to Him speaking back to me. And one thing that's really helped me over the years to stay faithful in disciplines is being a part of a small group of other women, and we're encouraging each other in that. And I've been a part of a group like that pretty much all of my adult life. And uh, the last few years I've been in a group on Wednesday mornings in which Becca has participated as well. So when we get together, we talk about our quiet times, we share scriptures together, and that has really been important for me to be consistent is the accountability there. Um, I have just recently been become consistent um, with spending time um, reading my Bible, and it's because of being part of this small group with um, the other ladies on Wednesday mornings, um, and we come together and just share whatever we, we've read from the Bible. And so there isn't a specific homework of, I have to read in this specific part this many chapters. I just read what I want to read and let God teach me what he wants to teach me, and then I share that. And I've felt the pressure to um, continue to do that since becoming a parent because how am I going to pour the word into my children if I don't have it myself? Um, And as far as prayer, I've realized I'm not so great at praying regularly, but I, in scripture reading, realized like those early believers who came to Jesus on Pentecost, they didn't get to take home their own copy of the Torah to highlight and underline and write in. They, they communed with God through prayer, and so mm-hmm. I need to model that because the power of the early church, um, I believe, came through their prayer r- relationship with Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of prayer, since you guys have been around a while, um, you've shared a little bit about some of the ways that you've most been impacted by uh, the ministries of grace over the years. Anything that you would like to see, you'd love to see God do here in Grace's life in the future? Well, I'm encouraged. I think God really is working a lot in grace in the area of prayer. I've seen that become more and more an emphasis over the years. And we know that it's a place where we can all go in times of crisis and be prayed for. But I see it also a place where we are seeking God in all of our decisions as a, as a body together. And I'm very encouraged with that. I would just like to point out that there's a flyer in the bulletin today that gives opportunities to be prayed for in different ways and also opportunities to pray for others if you have that on your heart. So please take that into consideration. Good. And my dream for grace as individuals with me at the very top of the list is to take our prayers outside of ourselves, that instead of me praying, please let my mom feel better, or please bring my dad home safely from his business trip, or please let my child sleep because I can't do another night like that, (laughs) is um, to take my prayers and make them um, steps towards radical action, that if I pray radical prayers about fixing or bringing healing where there's hurt, bringing Jesus' healing, then that will spur me to radical action and will just bring the kingdom now. <laughs> Amen. I would agree with that. Well, with that in mind, let's take a moment to pray together as a community. Lord, I, I just echo that heart's cry that 
Becca has. Lord, I would, I would love to see us as a body of believers more and more come together with that deep hunger for radical things to happen in and through this place to reach more and more people for Jesus. God, I pray that we would be able to demonstrate that through our lives. Not because we do all the right things, we check our time with God off of our list each day like we do other tasks. But Lord, that somehow in the midst of our busyness that we figure out how to make you front and center, the foundation of our lives. Lord, help us to figure out how to get into those rhythms ourselves in times when it can be so challenging. Lord, I just want to pray for each person who is here today. Lord, each one of us, we are on a journey. Each one, for each one of us, that journey looks a little bit different. It's taken different twists and turns. But ultimately, for each one of us, we expect, we anticipate that they will all, all those journeys will end up in the same place. And that would be in heaven one day with you. Lord, we pray that you would just continue to work in our lives, draw us closer to you, help us to see more and more aspects of who you are and your deep love for us. Lord, for those who are here today who have never experienced that love, who have never been able to relate to the things that we're talking about today, Lord, I pray that you would just enter into their lives as well. Lord, touch their hearts. Help them to see a little bit more of who you are. Lord, for each one of us, we pray that you would just continue to help us to take one step closer to you each and every day as we live out our days. In Jesus' name, amen.